Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where each week we review one influential OT-related journal article. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL, and I'm so excited that you are taking time from your busy OT life to join us today. My routine is a little different this week. I'm recording earlier in the week than I usually do because we are gearing up to take our boys camping this weekend. So definitely send us positive thoughts as we try to navigate an outdoor adventure. It's been a really fun week here at OT Potential. We just wrapped up the MedBridge giveaway for the OT Potential Club members. And actually right after I finish recording this, I'll be able to send out the email uh, to our lucky winner of a free MedBridge subscription. If you are a bummed you didn't win or interested in trying MedBridge, I did want to let you know that we have our own promo code, which is just OT Podcast. And when you use that, you will get the lowest price available to individual subscribers. Uh, I'm a big fan of MedBridge, both of the product and just of the company. They have been so supportive of OT Potential uh, over the past couple of years, and it's just a partnership that I'm really grateful for. Also, if you are a OT Potential Club member, we released an example of a home health OT eval this week. That's one of my favorite things to do each month. We give an example of an eval from a different setting. And it's just really fun to see how different people write notes. And even when it's a different setting than you work in, I think that there's always something to learn by looking at other examples of evaluations. And as I'm saying that, I'm realizing that we also need to be throwing in treatment notes uh, to our example mixes because we definitely uh, try to create stuff for CODAs as well. That's an important part of our community. So I am making a mental note of that. And lastly, on our blog this week, we don't have a release because we're working on some really big topics for the month of August that we are spending some extra time on. So be watching for those to come out in the upcoming month. Okay, so let's dive into the article of the week. The title of our article is Intravenous Bisphosphonate Therapy for Young Children with Osteogenesis Imperfecta, Skeletal Findings During Follow-Up Throughout the Growing Years. Now that sounds very specific and a little intimidating, but definitely hang in with me because I think there are some really great takeaways from this article. This article comes to us from the Journal of Bone and Mineral Research. In 2018, it had an impact factor of 5.7. So by that metric, this is a more influential journal than the American Journal of Occupational Therapy, AJOT, which has an impact factor between three and four. The article was published in 2015, and it is ranked 24th on our list of the 50 most influential OT-related articles. So this study looked at a mainstay treatment of osteogenesis imperfecta, which is bisphosphonate therapy. But like almost all complex diagnoses, multidisciplinary care is indicated, and thus we find mention of occupational therapy and our role in treatment in this article. The article provided a really good big picture overview of osteogenesis imperfecta, which I'll refer to as OI for the rest of this podcast, as well as the treatments that are available to these children. 
So in the article, children with OI who received bisphosphonate therapy had overall improved bone density and vertebral reshaping, but the rate of long bone fractures remained high, and the majority of patients still developed scoliosis. So we'll dig much deeper into what that means and kind of define some of those things that I mentioned. But overall, my big takeaway, which we'll come back to at the end, was that occupational therapy, along with physical therapy, is a really important treatment for these kids. And as you listen to this podcast, I hope it will help you understand why. So first things first, let's review our current understanding of osteogenesis imperfecta. I know it's a rare condition, so a lot of us don't see it on a regular basis. So let's just quickly do an overview of the disease in its course with information provided by the article. So osteoimperfecta is a heritable disorder, which is typically caused by a genetic mutation, which impacts type 1 collagen production. Now this type of collagen is the most abundant protein in the bone, skin, and other connective tissues that provides structure and strength to the body. So while OI is known as brittle bone disease, it's really important to remember that multiple systems are affected by this lack of collagen. And of particular note, connective tissues are also affected. So that's likely why we see the scoliosis and joint laxity in these kids. The severity of OI varies widely. The article breaks down four different types of OI. From other reading I did, I think there might actually be up to eight. Um, So I'm guessing that these are the main four. And I wish that it had given us information on percentages of how many uh, kids fall into each type roughly, because I would really like to have a sense of that. Uh, But here's the four types. OI type 1 represents the least severe end of the spectrum. OI type 2 represents the most severe end of the spectrum. And these children do not survive infancy just because of the fragility of their bone structure. OI type 3 represents the most severe type of OI in survivors of those kids that do make it through infancy. And OI type 4 represents the intermediate severity between type 3 and type 1. And then to give a quick definition of bisphosphonates, which I definitely had to Google the pronunciation of, bisphosphonates can be oral or an infusion. In this study, we're looking at infusions, and they work by slowing down the cells that break down bone, which are called osteoclasts, and that allows cells that build bone, which are osteoblasts, more time to work and reduce the imbalance. So right away here, you kind of should be getting a picture of why this is a good treatment, but not a perfect treatment for osteogenesis imperfecta. Uh, Because these bisphosphonates are really focused on increasing bone density, but as I just mentioned, The lack of collagen affects many systems. And so bluntly said, it's helpful treatment, but it's not a perfect treatment. Um, It's not getting at that core collagen issue. The study population was comprised of young patients who visited the Shriners Hospital in Canada. 37 children were identified who met the following criteria. One, they had intravenous bisphosphonate treatment, which was started before the age of five. The age was 14 years or older at the time of the last follow-up. The intent of the article was really to look at the long-term effects 
of this treatment, so they wanted to be following these kids for at least 10 years. And bisphosphonates had been given for at least six years. And during this time, the kids did not receive oral bisphosphonates. So all the information that we'll be looking at was gathered from chart reviews of these 37 patients. And there were also 37 children who were identified in the Shriner system who were matched for age, gender, and OI type, but had not received bisphosphonate prior to the assessment. So those 37 serve as our control for this group. So as I already mentioned, the children who received bisphosphonate therapy did show significantly better bone density scores on average. They were also on average 10 centimeters taller than those who had not received treatment. So that really indicates a healthier spine structure uh, than the kids who did not receive this treatment. But unfortunately, even though these kids had better bone density scores, these children were still had on average six femur fractures and five tibia fractures over the time that the study tracked them. So that is just under one major fracture per year. Um, and this rate is still obviously considered high. That's a high frequency to be having fractures of these major long bones in our legs. Other fractures were not tracked by this study because they frequently aren't documented with the same precision as the lower extremity long bones. For example, if these kids broke a finger that may not be treated within the Shriners system and make it into that chart there. So one would assume that if about once a year these kids are having a fracture of their long bones of their lower extremity that they're also having multiple other fractures of bones that are more vulnerable to breaks because our femur should hypothetically be one of the harder bones to break in our body. I do want to note that these fracture numbers were not compared to the pre-treatment fracture rates, nor from what I can tell were they compared with the control cohort. So we can definitely tell from this study that the rate of fractures is still relatively high. So for me, it didn't give a very good sense of whether the rate of fractures was much improved for the children who were on bisphosphonates. From the extra reading that I did, it does seem that overall, the fracture rates for the kids who undergo this treatment are improved, uh, but they're still significant. And then the study treated the vertebral compression fractures in kind of its own category, as that is a unique problem. And actually, I thought the data around the vertebral compression fractures was a little better. The article did clearly state that the children who had bisphosphonate treatment had less vertebral compression fractures than those who did not. In fact, at baseline for the treatment group, about 35% of their vertebrae were affected by compression fractures, and this dropped to 6% of vertebrae being affected by the final evaluation. So that's a really huge improvement for these kids. Unfortunately though, even though the vertebral bones had more integrity and we actually saw them reshaping after a compression fracture, the rate of scoliosis was still really high for these kids. So as I mentioned before, even though the bone health was better, osteogenesis imperfecta affects multiple symptoms, including those connective tissues. So what it seems is that there were other systems that were affected by the disease that were contributing to scoliosis and weren't helped by the treatment. So how is occupational therapy involved? 
A multidisciplinary approach was utilized for these patients. So in addition to infusions, many of them also received surgical interventions such as spinal fusions and rotting surgery. And all patients underwent physiotherapy and occupational therapy evaluation and treatment. The article states that this treatment included exercises in the provision of special devices for ambulation, mobility, positioning, and ADLs. The article also states that the level of ambulation was determined by a physiotherapist or occupational therapist using the Bleck scale. So what were my takeaways from this article for you? Um, This time, these are my personal takeaways. Sometimes I draw takeaways from the article discussion, but these are just kind of my own observations. So my first takeaway is simply that these patients should be on our caseload. I think before I read this article, I would have been intimidated and hesitant about the value that I could provide to a child in our community who had osteogenesis imperfecta. But reading this really helped me see that in the absence of a cure or treatment that really prevents fractures, these patients can really benefit from occupational therapy and physical therapy. The fact that all of the children who are in the Shriner system carries a lot of weight for me. I think of this as being one of the premier systems for children. And so if that's the care that they're providing there, that's definitely the care that I want to be providing um, in my local community. In almost all the overviews I looked at for care of osteogenesis imperfecta, occupational therapy was mentioned as one of the important treatments. Uh, Specifically, UpToDate said that occupational therapists can address the impairments in activity of daily living secondary to upper or lower limb deformity. I also think that it's our role to help these kids brainstorm and plan for safe participation in meaningful activities. And especially important is helping them figure out ways to participate in safe exercise that doesn't put them at risk for fractures. My second takeaway is a takeaway that we've already had multiple times on this podcast, and that is that multidisciplinary care works best. We've said this a lot in the club, but it bears repeating that a team approach is really necessary for complex cases. And it's my belief that OT should be continually honing their skills as team players. And that's definitely part of the goal of this podcast and our club to be looking at journal articles from different journals and different perspectives to really expand our perspectives and just be looking at what some of our colleagues are looking at as far as the evidence that's out there. And my final takeaway is that change is hard, but it is very needed. As I mentioned, bisphosphonates are the mainstay of treatment for OI, and from what I can tell, the evidence for their ability to prevent a certain percentage of fractures may have even improved since this article came out in 2015. But that being said, there is so much room for improvement in the treatment of OI. I think as healthcare practitioners, as we look at the upcoming decades, it's really easy to get wrapped up in worry and concern about changes to reimbursement and legislation and the pressure that that puts on our day-to-day life, which I know is very heavy and very real. But I think we need to balance that worry with 
just hope for all the positive changes that will hopefully come in the next decades. So I'm really hopeful that as medical research continues to expand exponentially, that part of that progress will be medical breakthroughs and new treatments for these kids. And in the meantime, as we're waiting for that hopeful future, we can continue as occupational therapy practitioners to provide the best care possible. So that is all that I have for you today on this article. Again, this podcast is an extension of the OT Potential Club. The OT Potential Club is your online journal club. And the online version is where these article reviews really come to life. We have a forum where each week we discuss the article and I'm so thankful to the people who share their expertise in, within our forum. Obviously, I am not an expert in all areas, and I'm just doing my best to convey what I find in these articles. So I appreciate people who jump in and share their own clinical expertise, and also who take the time to actually read the article that I'm reviewing and jump in with any different insights that they might have. We're definitely starting to build a database of articles and part of the feature of the club is that you can powerfully search the database to drill into any specific treatments that you are in the middle of. And we have topics ranging from pediatrics in the NICU all the way to end of life care. So whatever setting you practice in, I'm hopeful that you will find content that is helpful for you. And then one of my favorite parts is also that we do monthly bonus items. For example, we put out examples of documentation, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and we have a fieldwork manual to download and an SNFOT bundle to download, and we will be continuing to create items at your request. If you are interested in joining us, I encourage you to go to otpotential.com club, and you can learn more and sign up there. Thank you so much for joining me today and give great care this week.